0: All right, as you open your Bibles, would you stand with me? Turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 9. We're going to read verses 9 through 17. Pastor Bruce's message this morning is entitled, Jesus Came for Sinners. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find this passage on page 556. Again, we're going to read Matthew 9, verses 9 through 17. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, "'Follow me.' So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, "'Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners?' When Jesus heard that, he said to them, "'Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means.' I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse, nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved." Let's pray. Lord, we just thank You for Your gracious mercy on us all, God. Lord, we just pray with thanksgiving, Lord, that You came not to those we're deemed righteous, Lord, but we're all sinners. And God, you came for us, you died for us, and we can only praise you. In Christ's name, amen.
1: Thank you, Kirk. Appreciate you leading us in our scripture reading. Well, how many have seen the movie Despicable Me? Oh, almost. Oh, lots of you. Of course, this whole section right here, all the teens have seen it, definitely. And I see all the parents of the teens raise their hand. Uh, good movie. Hope you get a chance to see it. You can get it out on video or on demand, Despicable Me. If you haven't seen it, let me give you a Cliff Notes version of what it's about. It's about a supervillain named who? Gru. Gru. you got it, who uses a trio of orphan girls as pawns for his grand heist to shrink and steal the Earth's moon. Now, that's a movie you got to see right there, Right. But by the end of the movie, Gru finds that the girl's love is profoundly changing him for the better. And so he sets out to rescue them from another villain named Vector. You got it. Now, this morning, as we continue in our series here, based on the words of Christ, called Follow Me, what we're going to do is we're going to meet the original despicable me. A corrupt tax collector named Matthew, who was despicable to the core, and yet the love of Jesus radically changed his life. If truth be told, though, we all have a little despicable me inside of us. We all have a little bit of us, and some of us have a whole lot of despicable me inside of us. We may not be a supervillain named Gru. We may not even be a corrupt tax collector named Matthew, but because of our sinfulness, we're still despicable to the core. And apart from God's grace intervening in our lives, listen, we are doomed in our sin. But God didn't intervene, did he not? We praise him for that, we're thankful for that. And the good news is in God's intervention, he did it through his son Jesus, and the good news is Jesus came for sinners like us. And so what we're going to see this morning, if you want to fill your notes in, Jesus not only has the authority over sin, he also has the authority to save sinners like us. Jesus himself tells us in Matthew 9.13 in this story that we're going to look at, For I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And In fact, later on, Jesus would say in Matthew 18.11, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost so this is good news that was pretty bad this is good news yes especially if you're a despicable sinful person and to realize that Jesus came for sinners like despicable me and despicable you is good news indeed Especially when you begin to understand that Jesus did not come to give high fives to those who think everything is good in their life. Everything about them is okay. No, Jesus came to seek and to save those who understand how sinful they really are. So as we continue to follow Jesus in Matthew's gospel here, we're going to see that Jesus has authority to save sinners like us. Now, let me do just a quick review here of what we've been learning for the last few weeks in the book of Matthew, especially here in Matthew chapter 8, and now we're in Matthew chapter 9, is that Jesus possesses absolute authority in the world. We've been watching this, we've been seeing this, Matthew's showing us this, and because Jesus possesses absolute authority in the world, he warrants our absolute allegiance. From the world. Matthew uses one miraculous story after another to show us his power, to show us Jesus' authority to rule over all things. In Matthew 8, we saw that Jesus has authority over disease when he heals the sick. We, we also saw that Jesus has authority over disaster when he calms the storms and the seas. And then we saw that Jesus has authority even over The demons, when he restores two demon-possessed men. We moved on to Matthew 9 here, and in the beginning of that chapter, we saw that Jesus has authority even over sin, when he forgave the paralytic sin. And then he proves that authority to all the people in the house. He proves it as the Son of God, by then healing physically the paralytic. Now, imagine with me for a moment. You're one of the many people in that house that day. And you're watching this miraculous transformation, this miraculous demonstration of Jesus' authority over sin and over sickness. How do you think you would have responded if you were one of the bystanders in that crowded house? Probably the same way that Matthew writes in Matthew 9, verse 8. When it says, Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. And as these people leave and go back to their houses contemplating Jesus' forgiveness of sins, what questions do you think begin to arise in their own minds? What conversations do you think they are having as they leave the house and begin to walk two by two or as families or whatever, as friends, going back to their own houses? I can just imagine some of the conversations or what they just saw, some of the questions about what they just saw. The questions in the minds of many people were no doubt, well, how much sin is Jesus willing to forgive? I mean, whose sin can be forgiven? What are the conditions? What are the limits of Jesus' forgiveness of sin? Well, those are the questions that Matthew begins to answer for us in this section of scriptures here in Matthew 9. And what's interesting is that Matthew answers these questions with his own tell-all story his own salvation story, his own story of how he came to Christ, or rather how Jesus came to him. It's no accident that Matthew writes about his own salvation testimony right after he shares about Jesus' authority to forgive sins. It's it's almost as if Matthew is saying to us, man, when Jesus came to forgive sinners, listen, he came to forgive me. Let me tell you about it. And he begins to share his own story. So here's what Matthew tells us. Look at it. The first point is that Jesus often saves those who others think are not worthy to be saved. Jesus often saves those who others think are not worthy to be saved. Jesus is still in the city of Capernaum when he meets Matthew. Look at verse 9. We're in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. Look what it says. Then as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And so this verse right here, it it gives us some insight now into the kind of people that Jesus loves to save. So who is Matthew? Well, notice Matthew was a tax collector first and foremost. He's a tax collector who was considered a despicable crook. Jewish tax collectors were easily the most despised people in all of Israel, and for good reason. A Jewish tax collector was basically someone hired by the Roman government who was in power at that time to collect money from the people of Israel. And these guys got rich doing it. So Jewish tax collectors were considered despicable vermin, rich, despicable people. They were parasites who who sucked the life out of their own people in order to line the pockets of Rome and pad their own pockets in the process. Now, as you can imagine, Matthew's occupation as a tax collector was filled with corruption, extortion, greed, and disdain. I like how Pastor Chris described Matthew when he was teaching through the book of Mark on Wednesday nights a few years ago. He says, his career was considered dishonest, His character was considered despicable, and his cash was considered dirty. That pretty much summarizes Matthew. One Bible scholar writes, Jewish tax collectors were classified with robbers, murderers, and prostitutes. They were not only hated for their robbery, but also because they were lackeys of the Romans. Tax collectors could not serve as witnesses in court. They were barred from the synagogues and forbidden to have any religious or social contact with fellow Jews. So people like Matthew, let me tell you, they are the ultimate outsiders in Jewish culture here. They were vilified by the Jewish community. They were rejected by the religious community. But I'm so thankful Jesus pursues sinners just like Matthew. The call of Matthew, look at this. Matthew is an example here for us. He's an example that Jesus has authority to forgive even the worst of sinners and radically change their lives. That's why God includes this story here for us. To see this, and hopefully by looking at Matthew's testimony, we see our own lives in his life. Think about it. Matthew is a guy who takes advantage of people by working for the Roman government and then patting his own pockets. And yet, get this, Jesus enters into this guy's life. He enters into his life, into Matthew's world, and basically says to him, follow me. Follow me. Perhaps somewhere in the conversation, Jesus said, Matthew, listen, I got something far better for you than a tax station life is so much more than just getting rich and accumulating things follow me and find out and Matthew tells us in verse 9 look at it, here's his response and he arose and did what? what's it say? and followed him and he arose and followed him now, let's be honest, Matthew's being rather modest here After all, Matthew's the one writing these words. This is his gospel long after he started following Jesus. And and he's been humbled by the grace of God intervening in his life and saving him. So Matthew's being modest when he says this. And he arose and followed him. But if you go over to Luke's parallel story of this uh, Matthew's conversion... Luke tells us in Luke chapter 5, verse 28, that Matthew got up and Luke adds these words He left everything and followed Jesus. Now let's just stop for a moment and let's think about all that Matthew was leaving behind here to follow Jesus, such as his post, his position, his possessions. Most people think that tax collectors were fairly wealthy because of the greed, because of the profit. That was involved in their type of business and so you've got Matthew leaving all that behind and surely his position would be filled pretty soon by the Roman government so he could never go back to his job his old job his old way of life I mean I mean who's going to hire a former tax collector among the Jewish community of people none of them are So Matthew's leaving behind the security of his job. He's leaving behind the stuff in his life in order to follow Jesus. Now don't miss this. If Jesus can radically change Matthew here, then Jesus can radically change anyone. If Jesus can take a despicable tax collector like Matthew and transform him into a fully devoted follower that writes a book about Jesus... Then Jesus can transform your life. Jesus can transform my life. Listen, there's no such sin. There's no sin that you've done that Jesus cannot forgive. That's the lesson here. That's the emphasis that Matthew wants us to see in this story. He has authority to forgive the worst sins and the worst sinners, which means you're never outside the reach of the relentless grace. Of Jesus Christ so no matter how bad a sinner you think you are Jesus pursues you and he calls you to follow him and not because you're worthy of it because we are not but because Jesus is the one who is worthy and he pursues us he calls us he saves us he forgives us so Matthew here Leaves everything in order to follow Jesus. And what I love about this is the way Matthew describes it. He doesn't describe this whole thing as some sort of grim resignation. It's not like when I had to go get my colonoscopy. Three days before, I'm whining to my wife. I don't want to do this. No, no, this is just nasty. You've got to drink that stuff. and The prep, it's just... That's not how Matthew's describing it here. It's not some grim resignation. There's no crying about what he left behind. Instead, there's what? There's extreme joy that his life had been rescued from sin, that he had been redeemed by the Savior. In fact, Matthew is so stoked about what Jesus did for him that he throws a party at his house in honor of Jesus, and he invites the only people he knew his friends. And who do you think are Matthew's friends? Yeah, other sinners, such as other tax collectors, prostitutes, criminals, and the like. And Matthew wanted them to know what Jesus had done for him and what Jesus could do for them. This is what we find in verse 10. Look what it says. And so it was, as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. So picture this here, if you can, in your mind. Here is Jesus, and he's dining, and he's eating, and he's socializing with some of the worst sinners in Jewish society. Matthew tells us that many sinners came to this party. And not because they passed some litmus test at the door, but simply because Jesus accepted them for who they were, just as He does each of us here this morning. This is what grace does. It doesn't condone sin, but neither does it sit back in condemnation of people. Instead, grace reaches out to all people with the gospel of Jesus. This is beautiful. Picture this. Jesus ate with sinners because he loved them and he wanted to redeem them. Now this is such a beautiful picture of God's grace and God's gospel, but the Pharisees did not think it was such a beautiful picture because, well, after all, those are the kind of people that they ignored. Those are the kind of people that they isolated themselves from. So the Pharisees marched to Matthew's house to protest and to make accusations against Jesus in the form of a question. Look at it in verse 11. Matthew tells us here, and when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, which is interesting, they don't even have the, uh, well, they don't even have the courage to go directly to Jesus. They pull his disciples aside. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? In other words, here's the accusations of the Pharisees. It's basically this. Why does Jesus eat with the wrong people? Now, this was not a question of inquiry, but rather a rhetorical question of rebuke about Jesus to his disciples. And so the Pharisees began their interrogation with Jesus' disciples. How is it your teacher associates with such riffraff? Don't you realize these people are sinners? Can't you see these are the kind of people that will corrupt you? Missing, of course, is that it's not the sinners influencing Jesus, but the other way around. But because they didn't care about such sinners, the Pharisees stayed away from tax collectors. They stayed away from other people who weren't ceremonially clean and culturally clean like themselves. Oh, church, may that never be us. May that never be the case in our church and with our ministries. May we never be a people who are so consumed with ourselves, in our ministries here, that we turn a deaf ear to the outcasts and to those who are labeled as, quote, sinners. May we love all people knowing that we were once dead in our sins. And it's only by the mercy and grace of God that we are now alive in Christ and set free from our sins. There's great truths here. I hope you take them to heart of the implications for us personally and for our ministries here as a church at Glenwood. While the Pharisees were rebuking the disciples, Jesus perhaps overhears this as he's socializing with Matthew and his friends, and he steps in and he begins to rebuke the Pharisees. Look at it. Look what Jesus says in verse 12 and 13. But when Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I do not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We can summarize what Jesus says here, his his rebuke, his explanation to the Pharisees this way. More than sick people need a doctor, sinful people need a redeemer or a savior. That's basically what he's saying here. This is why Jesus came. He came for sinners like us, because we need a Savior like him to redeem us and to save us. After all, what sort of doctor would spend all this time with healthy people and refuse to associate with those who are sick? What kind of doctor is that? In the same way, people are spiritually sick and need help. Someone must go to them, and the good news is Jesus is the doctor who brings healing to our souls. Jesus then quotes from the Old Testament book of Hosea to make clear that he came to pursue sinners like us and to change our hearts when he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In other words, Jesus didn't come to to prop up people who, who think they're righteous by their religious tradition and ritualistic worship. He came to save sick people From their sins. And then just to make sure there's no misunderstanding on behalf of these Pharisees, Jesus declares his purpose at the end of verse 13 when he says, For I did not come to call the who? The righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now in many ways, this is a, well can we say it, a backhanded slap at the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees thought they were what? They thought they were the righteous. They thought they were better than everybody else. The Pharisees never thought of themselves as sinners, and so consequently they never made sense of the gospel. After all, if you don't think you're a sinner, then Jesus is of no value to you. What the Pharisees failed to see here is that Jesus did not come to call the righteous why because there are none who are righteous don't miss this think about it if jesus did not come for sinners then he came for no one why because according to romans 3 verses 10 through 12 there is no one righteous not even one there is no one who understands there is no one who seeks god All have turned away, and they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's why Jesus states his purpose and declares it to them. I came to call not the righteous, because there aren't any in this world, but sinners to repentance. What does all this mean? simply means this. Right there in your notes, Jesus came to call sinners, because there's no one else to call. That's all there is. And this has huge implications for us as a church and for us personally in our lives. In her book, Gospel Medicine, Barbara Taylor writes, listen to her words. If Jesus were putting together a sinner's table today at the local Denny's, it might include a child molester a garbage collector, a young man with age, a migrant farm worker, a teenage crack addict, a motorcycle gang member, and an unmarried woman on welfare with five children by three different fathers. Did I miss anyone, she says. As you picture this, don't forget to put Jesus at the head of the table, asking the young mother to hand him a roll, please. Church, those are the kind of people Jesus loved. Those are the kind of people he came for. He reached out to them. He ate with them. He drank with them. And he talked with them. And if we're going to be a church for all peoples, then we must be willing to be more like Jesus and less like the Pharisees. Listen, there's only one kind of person Jesus came for. And that's sinners. And I'm thankful for that. Because that means he came for me. And that means he came for you some of us are sinners saved by grace and others of us are sinners who can still yet be saved by grace in his book the Ragmuffin muffin gospel Brennan Manny reminds us Jesus comes not for the superficial but for the wobbly and the weak need who know they don't have it all together and who are not too proud to accept the handout of amazing grace Something is radically wrong when the local church rejects a person who is accepted by Jesus. Any church that will not accept that it consists of sinful men and women and exists for them implicitly rejects the gospel of grace. And what a great reminder for all of us here this morning, both in our personal lives and for us as a church when it comes to our ministries. Why we exist is to reach out into this community and the communities where you live with the amazing grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus came for sinners like Matthew, and like me, and like you. There is no one else. Aren't you thankful that Jesus came for people like that? What we see here in Matthew's story is that Jesus often saves those who others think are not worthy to be saved. But we also learn something else about Jesus. Notice this in your notes, coming up on the screen. Jesus often surprises those who follow him. And yes, he even annoys those who don't. At some point later, the disciples of John the Baptist show up to question Jesus in verse 14. You may remember John the Baptist. John's the guy who prepared the way for Jesus by preaching repentance of sin. He's kind of an eclectic individual. He's described as one who wore camel's hair, ate honey and locusts, and lived out in the wilderness. And yet he, he, he fulfilled a very important role in preparing the way for Jesus Christ to come. And when Jesus came on the scene, John told people to start focusing on Jesus. Hey, don't focus on me, don't follow me, follow him. Behold the Lamb, John says. He's the Son of God. But for whatever reason, these disciples were still following John. And they were even practicing the same religious traditions the Pharisees practiced, such as fasting. Perhaps they were fasting in mourning because of the death of John the Baptist, who had been beheaded sometime earlier. We're not told why. But whatever the reason is, the disciples of John are kind of sort of put off because while they were fasting, the disciples of Jesus are feasting. Now, to give you uh, uh, context here in our own culture, what this would be like, it's like my two boys or your kids, and, and you give candy to one, and the other one doesn't have any, and he's doing what? He's whining. That's not fair! Why does he going to do that, and I don't? Well, that's what John the Baptist's disciples are doing here. Hey, we're fasting, and your disciples are feasting. What's up with that? I find it ironic that all this fuss though is centered around what? centered around food first the Pharisees rebuked Jesus for eating with the wrong people and now John's disciples question Jesus about eating at the wrong time basically what they're asking Jesus here is Jesus why do your disciples eat at the wrong time? Now. While fasting was a normal Jewish practice, Jesus wasn't condemning fasting. Fasting has an important place in the Old Testament, we're going to see and even in the New Testament today. And so fasting, even in Jesus' day, was a normal Jewish practice. But here's one thing to note. The only fast day required by the Old Testament law was on the Day of Atonement, which was one day a year. But by the New Testament times, The Pharisees had adopted the practice of fasting on Mondays and Thursdays. And let me tell you, the Pharisees made sure everyone knew that they were fasting. Why? So they could prop their self-righteousness up in front of everybody. So they could be seen as better than everybody. John's disciples embraced the same practice of fasting all the time, but they really didn't understand the reason for their fasting. perhaps seemed just like the right thing to do, so they fasted while Jesus' disciples feasted, which caused even more confusion for them. So they come to Jesus, they ask his question, and Jesus begins to clarify for them, here's the purpose of fasting at this time. He clarifies the confusion with an illustration about a wedding, some old cloths, and some old wineskins. So let's look at it briefly here. First, the confusion about fasting clarified. Why disciples of Jesus didn't fast then? Well, because after a thousand years of waiting, the king had finally come. Why were Jesus' disciples not fasting? Well, that's the big question that provokes this conversation. Listen to what Jesus' response is in verse 15. Look at it. He says, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? So what is Jesus saying here? Well, on one level, Jesus is somewhat linking fasting with mourning. And it makes sense when you think about fasting in the Old Testament. Remember the Day of Atonement we briefly t- mentioned? Day of Atonement was the one fast day required by Old Testament law. And it was a solemn time of, of repenting of one's sin, of remembering one's sins and the sins of the nations and looking to God for forgiveness for those sins. So fasting is associated with mourning in the Old Testament, but then Jesus says, hey, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? So what Jesus is using here is a wedding analogy, wedding imagery that revolves around a groom, which is interesting when you realize that in the Old Testament God describes himself as a bridegroom for his people Israel, which are the bride. The book of Hosea. We already talked about that. Matthew is already quoted, or actually Jesus is quoted from the book of Hosea. I won't have time to go into it, but the book of Hosea is a picture, the whole book is, of God's relentless pursuit of his people. It's a picture of God as the bridegroom pursuing his unfaithful bride, the people of Israel. It's a fascinating book, I challenge you to read it. Because it's a great example of God's unfaithful, or I should say God's faithful love, relentless love of even us today. When we are unfaithful to him. The prophet Isaiah picks up on this theme and he tells us in Isaiah 62, 5, he says, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So now we're here in the New Testament, and when Jesus says, Can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? He's basically saying, Jesus is, hey, the groom is here. And guess what? I'm the groom. So now is the time to rejoice, not mourn. Think about it when you go to a wedding. You don't see the wedding guests sitting around mourning and weeping. No way. You see them celebrating with the groom. It's time of celebration, not mourning. And in the same way, Jesus is saying his disciples don't fast. While he's with them because the groom is here. And so there's no reason to fast. Especially when you realize that for centuries and for generations, God's people have mourned and longed for it. They have prayed and they have fasted for the day when the groom would come. The day when the king of kings would come. They've waited for this day. And after a thousand years of waiting, who has finally come onto the scene? The king, the groom, Jesus Christ. So this is not a time to fast for Jesus' disciples. Let me tell you, it was a time to feast. Which leads us to the next two illustrations Jesus uses when he says in verses 16 and 17, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth in an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break and the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Now we don't have time to, to get all into what is being said here, but let me just summarize it quickly. Jesus is basically saying, with my coming now, God is doing something new here. This is a new day. This is not just a revision. It's not just an update on, Jewish, on the Jewish religious system. This is an Apple sending out an update for your iPhone. And you're just updating, hoping it fixes the glitches in it. How many have had great, your Wi-Fi dim out on you? Another, it, yeah, my, I, we have three iPhones. Two out of three I've had to take to Apple Store and get re, replaced. This isn't, hey, no, Bill, I heard that. That was bad. He was mocking Apple. Basically, when Jesus came on the scene, he's not just updating the old system, the old traditions, the old law. Man, he came to transform it all. This is a transformation of everything. And as a result, there's now no need to fast because the Lord, the King, the groom is here. And he's now making a way for people to come to God. He's bringing salvation to sinners. And so Jesus is basically saying to John's disciples, Listen, dudes, rejoice. Celebrate. Have a feast. Don't fast while I'm still here. But then notice what Jesus says at the end of verse 15. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And then they will fast. And this leads us to our second point. Why disciples of Jesus do fast now, today. Because those who celebrate the ascension of the king now anticipate the return of the king. After Jesus died on the cross, he did what? He rose again. And after 40 days, as the risen Savior on this earth, what did he do? He ascended into the heaven where he's with his Father. And the angel of the Lord, you can read about it in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, promises, men of Galilee, speaking of the disciples, these same disciples here, why do you stand here looking into the sky? They've just seen Jesus ascend. This same Jesus who has been taken from you in to heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven you go to Acts 13 and guess what the followers of Christ are doing they're fasting Acts 14 guess what they're doing again they're now fasting go to 2nd Corinthians 6 and guess what the church is doing fasting You go over to 2 Corinthians 11, and you know what? They're fasting again. In other words, get this. Throughout the New Testament, you see the church fasting now. Why? Why are they fasting now? I mean, the king has come. He's died on the cross. He's risen from the grave. He's conquered sin. He reigns in heaven. So why fast now? Well, this is where we realize that there's a significant difference between Old Testament fasting and New Testament fasting. Old Testament fasting was basically looking forward you say looking forward to what it was longing for it was praying for the day when who would come the king would come the Savior the promised Messiah would come and when you get to the New Testament fasting though everything is different it's looking backward but also forward it's looking back and its seeing. yes the king has come And we have reason to rejoice. He's conquered sin. He's conquered death. And we have tasted the salvation and the satisfaction of Christ the King who has come. And yet, at the same time, there's also a looking forward. Why? Because we know that what we have tasted in Christ, what we have seen in Christ the King, that there is more to come. In other words, what we're experiencing now, this is just a picture. This is just the hors d'oeuvres. This is just the starter, the appetizer, if you will. So we look forward to the king's return. So how does all this talk about fasting fit into my life today? I mean, what's the big deal about it? What difference does it make? Well, get this. Let me put it in context for you directly here in the book of matthew chapters eight and nine matthew is not by accident matthew puts this picture of jesus talking about fasting and feasting right here in the middle of all these different miracle stories where we see people struggling with disease people are struggling with disasters People are struggling with demons. They're struggling with even death. That's what we're going to see next Sunday. And the reality is, do we still not live in that world? Absolutely, you bet. Look within our own church family. Look outside of our church family, in the world. And we still live in a world today where we are surrounded by disease and disasters and demons and death. And yes, we have tasted and we have seen that Jesus is good. After all, He came for sinners like us. Amen? That is good. But at the same time, we know that we are not home yet. This is not the the finality of it all. We know that something better is coming. We know that one day Jesus is coming back and He's going to fully and finally assert His authority over all these things. And when that day comes... And this is the glorious part, there will be no more sickness. Woo, right? There will be no more suffering. There will be no more sin. And that's what we fast for. That's what we pray for. So there's rejoicing, yes, in the past. Why? Because Jesus came. It's why we celebrate Christmas. But there's also this longing for the future. Why? Because Jesus will come again. We long for that day to come. Do we not? We should be longing for that day to come. We should long for that day more than we long for our vacation, more than we long for the weekend to come. Why? Because that's the ultimate reality. We long for the day when we won't suffer with cancer and tumors anymore. We long for the day when we won't struggle relationally with people. We won't struggle emotionally. We long for the day when we won't battle with self and sin and sensuality anymore in this world and in our lives. Don't you long for that day? So fast for it. Pray for that day to come. And that's the whole purpose of fasting is you're setting aside focused time in order to pray intentionally for something. So fast and pray for that day to come knowing that you have tasted and that you have seen the grace and the goodness of Jesus already and there's more to come. And we can't wait for that day to come when the king returns. Man, I'm so thankful that Jesus came the first time. Amen. That Jesus came for sinners like Matthew, he came for sinners like me, and sinners like you. Matthew shows us here that Jesus not only has authority over sin, but, folks, listen, he has authority. To save sinners like us. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the message we proclaim. So before we close, let me ask you a couple of questions that are in your notes. Have you received then what Jesus came to give? That is the forgiveness of sins and a changed life. Jesus has authority to forgive sin, and he will forgive your sin if you will turn to him in repentance and faith. And if you have received forgiveness of sins, if Jesus has changed your life, man, then rejoice! And don't keep it to yourself. Tell others about it. Which brings us to the second question. Do you love who Jesus came for? Do you care about who Jesus came for? And that is sinners who are in desperate need of the Savior. It's interesting, when you look at this story from, kind of you back up from this story, you got Jesus, and you had the Pharisees. And who did the Pharisees focus on? The Pharisees focused on themselves. But Jesus focused on who? Jesus focused on sinners. Sinners. Because that's who he came for. So perhaps the better question this morning is, who are we focused on as we live our lives? As we go to work tomorrow, as we go home this afternoon, who are we focused on? Are we focused on our own selves? Do we live in our own little world? Or are we focused on my neighbor my coworker, the parents my kids play sports with or concerts with. The Pharisees focused on themselves, but Jesus focused on sinners. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning, and I'm so thankful that You sent your son, Jesus, and he came for sinners like Matthew, sinners like myself, and, Lord, sinners like everybody in this church. Lord, I'm thankful that you pursue us with your relentless, amazing grace and that you call us to repentance and you open up our eyes and our heart to see our sin and ourselves and our need for you as our Savior. And Lord, perhaps there is one, two, or a handful of people who for the first time are are seeing that. Lord, I pray that you would draw to yourself and they would cry out to you for forgiveness of sins and a changed life. Lord, for those of us who have already been saved, you've already transformed our lives. We have our sins forgiven. Lord, that you would burden us For those who have yet to know who you are. Who have yet to experience your grace, the gospel. And Lord, we would take our eyes off ourselves and our own little world. We would see those around us that are in desperate need of a Savior. And so Lord, convict us and burden us. And as we come to this response time, may you work through your spirit and your word. And may we respond as a people of God here this morning. As Zach sings, of course, will you respond how God is leading in your life?